Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. How do you avoid turning your back on a country that seems to have turned on you? I'm Jamil Smith, and I'm your host for Vox Conversations. The terrorist attacks on September 11, 2001, unleashed a new wave of something all too familiar in the United States. Racist intimidation and violence. Violence primarily targeting Arab and Muslim Americans and anyone who quote-unquote looked Arab or Muslim. The first of more than a dozen people murdered in this wave of post-9-11 attacks was Balbir Singh Sodi. He was a Sikh immigrant from the Indian Punjab whose family owned a Mesa, Arizona gas station. At the time of his murder, Balbir was planting flowers around his parking lot to commemorate the thousands killed four days earlier. Valerie Korb is a Sikh author, filmmaker, and activist. And she was one of more than 100 people who came to that same gas station recently to remember and to grieve the man she called Balbir Uncle on the anniversary of his death. As her friend and as a Black man living in this country, I wanted to know more about how the events of 9-11 changed Valerie's life. I also wanted to understand how and why she and so many others targeted by this violence and hatred managed to not give up on America. In her best-selling memoir, See No Stranger, published in 2020, Valerie Kaur argues for something she calls revolutionary love. In an America still afflicted with white supremacist extremism, her idea resonates. But what exactly does she mean? by revolutionary love. Valerie Kaur, welcome to Vox Conversations. So happy to be here. I'm thinking a lot about revolutionary love, as it it turns out, because I've been rereading your book. And first of all, for people who are listening who don't know what you mean by that, how do you define revolutionary love? Revolutionary love is the choice to look upon the face of anyone and say, you are a part of me I do not yet know. Mm. I will let your story into my heart. I will let your grief into my heart. I will stand for you when you are in harm's way. And that kind of love, (laughs) Jamil, I mean, I'm a lawyer. Anytime anyone stood up on a stage and said love was the answer, I would roll my eyes. You know, like, are you kidding me? (laughs) With what we're up against, institutions that perpetuate injustice, cycles of violence, come on. And it was only after, you know, almost 20 years of activism since 9-11 that I began to understand that the problem with America is not just a political one or an economic one, but a spiritual one, a cultural one. Mm-hmm. And that what we need right now is, is a shift in culture and consciousness, a new way of being and seeing that leaves no one behind, a kind of revolution of the heart. And the kind of love I'm talking about is the kind of love on the lips of social reformers through history. It's not just a rush of emotion. Love, love is labor. Love is sweet labor. It's fierce, bloody imperfect, life-giving. It's a choice that we make every day. Certainly, I have to make that every day with my babies, with my loved ones. And so what does it mean to take a little bit of that kind of love as labor and pour it into others who are in harm's way? That is when love takes on a revolutionary force. Because what if we saw George Floyd as brother Mm -hmm. or Brianna as sister or migrant child at the border as our own daughter? What would we risk? What would we do? that releases revolutionary potential. When I heard that term the first time, I must admit, I thought of John Lewis. I thought about the kind of spirit that animates the fights for Black liberation, thought about the kinds of emotions that fuel activists today when you know their energy and their resources are depleted. 
And, you know, I definitely had a little bit of a different definition coming into it. Now, obviously, it's your book. I didn't want to write over your definition. But I think the two actually share a, a common bond in, in that they are about pushing to reconsider what you are, are capable of. And I just think that, you know, love being understood as an action is key to what you're, you're talking about, right? That's it. I remember the moment my son was placed on my chest when he was born and I was shaking and sobbing from all that Russia feeling. And I'm thinking, oh, this is love. You know, I'm falling mm-hmm. in love. And I was, there's a, there's a place for the falling, right? In the meantime, my mother is opening up her bag and taking out her doll and chol and proceeding to feed me, like feeding her baby as <laughs> I'm feeding my baby. And I looked at my mother and I realized, oh, she's never stopped laboring for me, like from my birth to my son's birth. And she knew what I was just then beginning to learn that, Love is that ongoing, fierce labor, the choice to keep showing up for each other from this wellspring of care. And I think if we can release some of that, when we look at our movements that are rooted in solidarity, not, I'm not talking about shallow solidarity. I'll show up for you, so then you show up for me. I'm talking about deep solidarity. You know, I will show up right. for you because I see you as sister, brother, sibling. I choose to love you. I will labor for you. That kind of love is what gives us longevity in struggles for justice, because then the labor is not just a means to an end. It's an end in itself. I'm thinking about the audiences that these words and sentiments fall upon, which you mentioned earlier, people being maybe a little bit cynical saying, hey, you know, really love is the answer to what we're going through right now. I mean, I remember even in what you wrote in chapter nine, you, you talked about the loudest voices in the world running on the energy of fear, criticism and cruelty. How do you get people to stop cringing and open their hearts and minds to the possibility that really love is the foundation of any solution? Yeah, you show them. You show them. What gives me hope is that there are a lot of people who are awake right now that weren't before to the necessity of anti-racism, right? You're seeing those books flying off the shelves. You're, You're seeing people trying to be woke, trying to say the right things. And I keep thinking it's not just an idea that you hold. Anti-racism is the bridge but beloved community is the destination. And it's a way of being, when I speak, I'm not inviting people to become activists like myself. I'm I'm inviting them into a way of seeing, a way of being with each other. If we can see others as a part of us, to see no stranger is then to lead with wonder and to begin to find ways to build beloved community where we are. So showing them, I mean, I just remember last summer, the summer of reckoning, you know, for a lot of Black folks in America, it felt mm-hmm. right. It felt like 1992. It felt like 1968. And then we saw images of white people standing in front of Black people kneeling in the street in front of an army of police officers. We had never seen those images before, right? And the multiracial uprising for Black lives. Indianapolis this year, another massacre on sick Americans. To me, it felt like Oak Creek in 2012, where it felt like the aftermath of 9-11. But what was different this time is people showing up with us, for us, as a beloved community to say, no, we stand with you. So my question is, how can we create beloved community, not just in the wake of crises, but where we are? How can we see every institution that we're part of, like our home, our school, our workplace, as a container for a community that is anti-racist, healthy, sustainable? If love is labor, And love can be taught, love can be modeled, love can be practiced, and we can give people the tools to do it. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of folks, especially in progressive spaces, they mistake love as a rush to forgive or a rush to civility or, you know, something that feels good and then then disappears. But if you're thinking about love as labor, then love contains all of the emotions— you know, grief. We need to be brave with our grief. Grief is the price of love. Our rage, you know, (laughs) rage is not the opposite of love. We have to harness our rage to protect that which we love. And then joy is the gift of love. So inviting people to imagine loving as an ongoing labor and honoring all of the emotions that come with that is inviting them into a way of building community with each other. I mean, part of the reason I admire you so much, I'll just say this is that you're loving and vulnerable and forgiving in ways that right now I find myself incapable of being. I don't think it's because 
necessarily a trauma or what have you. I do think that, you know, there's just maybe a limited scope that I have uh, as far as the power of what you're talking about to actually bring about results. And I'm working on myself in that regard. But, <laughs> uh, you know, I think that, you know, there are people who simply may not, you know, say, hey, listen, we need to get food out to these food deserts. We need to have the police stop harassing my children. We need to have the school board mandating masks so that my kid doesn't get sick. Yeah. I mean, all of these things are happening. And we've seen in nonviolent movements before the plea to, if not love thine enemy, then at least to walk in the pathway of love, more or less. How do you get past all these assorted hatreds that are just so easy to indulge mm -hmm. in? Let me say that you know, revolutionary love is practice in community, and everyone has a different role at any given time. So I, I define revolutionary love as, as the choice to labor for others, for our opponents, and for ourselves. If you are someone who has a knee on your neck right now, yeah. it's not your role to look up at your opponent and try to wonder about them. Or listen to them. Your role, my love, is, is to stay alive, to take the next breath. That's your revolutionary act. But if you are someone who is safe enough or have has enough privilege to be able to tend to those kinds of opponents, then we need you now. We need you in that labor. And so I, I'm inviting people to ask, like, what is my particular role, given where I am in the country, in the movement, with the skills that I have? And, you know, you, you talk about forgiveness and I have to say, like, it's actually not one of the core practices I found in revolutionary love that wondering about one's opponent and seeing their humanity is the invitation because then they lose their power over you. Well, perhaps I interpreted that as a bit of forgiveness, mm, you know, even yeah. recognizing the humanity because sometimes that can be scary. You know, frankly, people who are doing evil things as fully human. This yeah. police officer who shot Tamir Rice is not a monster or he's not a, you know, some kind of demon. He's a man. And yeah. that realization can be, I think, frightening for a lot of people. I understand. In fact, I, like many women, I'm a survivor of, of sexual assault. And my assailant asked for forgiveness right after it happened. And I just, I was like, no way. <laughs> You're not going to take my one God. more thing from me. You know, I withheld my forgiveness as an act of agency and I needed it. I needed to hold on to it until like I processed my grief, accessed my rage. It took me years and years and years, Jamil. And then finally I got to the, a point in my healing process where I was holding this animosity and realized like, oh, this is weighing me down. <laughs> I'm having nightmares of him as a monster and that's not hurting him at all. It's hurting me. And once I could just begin to like whew, let go of it just a little bit, I could begin to see him not as a monster, but as a frail kid whose father was an alcoholic who never knew how to treat women with respect and with care. And that didn't make him any less dangerous, but it freed me from his hold over me and it allowed me then to forgive him. Forgiveness is not forgetting. Forgiveness is freedom from hate. It's for you. It's not for them. Mm. And when that happens, the unimaginable possibility of reconciliation might begin. It's all about timing. It's can you get to a point eventually in the healing process where you might lift your gaze and see the humanity of that person and in the meantime, if you cannot, can you give other people the permission to do so? And that's what happened with me and my assailant. I gave other family members the permission to tend to his wound. And I learned that there are no such thing as monsters in this world. There are only human beings who are wounded, who do what they do out of their own insecurity or greed or blindness. Again, that doesn't make them any less dangerous. But once we see their humanity and we call upon community, it shifts us from an, a system of retribution to restorative justice and and if we could do that individually, you know, in pockets, maybe that will accumulate enough wisdom to invite the country as a whole to do that. You mentioned the concepts of reconciliation and justice. And to me, I don't know if they necessarily go hand in hand in the kind of parlance that we've been operating in with regard to civil rights. Uh, you know, we see people pleading for justice for those who are assaulted or killed by police. We see people pleading for justice who are sexually assaulted and harassed. We hear these pleas for justice, but 
to me, uh, it's more about accountability, which I don't think is quite the same thing. So here's the thing. Reconciliation doesn't mean a relinquishing of accountability. It's quite the opposite. It's almost as if choosing to see your opponent as a human being opens up the possibility of reconciliation. And in the meantime, like creates a pathway for accountability for them to be able to take ownership over what they did. I'll give you an example. When we reached out to Frank Roque, the person who killed Bilbir Singh Sodhi in a hate crime, yes. it was so hard to hear him and to understand his story and why he did what he did. But in his voice, I could understand and hear this deep sense of grief, that all of his aggression was a symptom of unresolved grief. Him, like so many white nationalists, were grieving the notion that America ever belonged just to them. Somebody has to help them with that grieving process. It's probably not going to be me, but somebody has to step in to do that labor because what will we do with all of these people <laughs> as the nation becomes a multiracial nation? In the meantime, he's in prison to keep our community safe. So as we're hearing from abolitionists and from the movement for Black Lives, more and more a choice to let go of a reliance on law enforcement and mass incarceration, we have to look at alternative models that do both, that make space for accountability and also open up the possibility for reconciliation so that we might take that information and imagine how do we not create more Frank Rokes? How do we not create more assailants? How do we then change the cultures that radicalize them, the institutions that authorize them? And that is the lasting change that I'm after, not simply unseating bad actors, but changing the context itself. Right. And you know, I think about this this tragedy that you experienced and how it prompted you to do what you did uh, following the September 11th the terrorist attacks. Can you tell me how that manifested for you? I was a kid in college. I was home for the summer and my father woke me up and we watched the second plane go into the second tower and frantically tried to call my father's brother who works a few blocks away, found out that he just made it out. And then we saw an image of a man with a turban and beard on the TV. And I realized that our nation's new enemy looks like my family. Mm. Within hours, we heard news of hate violence erupting on city streets across the country against Muslim Americans. And then my family, my community, Sikh Americans, where we keep our hair long as part of our faith. And many men, some women wrap their hair in a turban. You know, the turban is meant to communicate our commitment to love and serve all, that we can stick out in a crowd and you can come to us for help. Like that's why six wear turbans and how ironic that in that moment it marked us as targets for hate. This was before social media. So before YouTube, Twitter, yes. before we had any channels to tell our own stories, we just had email. And I remember opening up my inbox and seeing these emails, like my, my brother's been beaten, my sister's been stabbed, Gurdwada's on fire, someone's going to die, someone's going to die. And then September 15th, Four days later, we got a call from Arizona that Bulbir uncle had been killed. He was a family friend. He was a kind-hearted person. He was known to give candy to the children of customers who came to his store. If people didn't have enough money for gas, he would just let them go. And his brothers would look at him and say, are you a saint or are you a fool? And he says, well, <laughs> God wants us to serve all. I mean, I don't think people of color need to be saints in order to be remembered in death. Certainly not. You know, there's always a constant search for the perfect victim. Right. Totally. Yeah. yeah. And and I have to tell you that Bobir uncle was an exceptional human being. He was so deeply loving. I mean, he was a family friend and yet I called him uncle like so many of us did. So when he was killed in front of the gas station while planting flowers by a man who called himself a patriot and... He was the first of dozens of people killed in the aftermath of 9-11, but his story barely made the evening news. And so, you know, really distraught, shaken, I, I took a leave of absence from college and began crossing the country with my camera to try to capture these stories. And Jamila, I was going to be an academic, you know, I wanted to study religion. And here I was like that murder turned me into an activist. And that was true for an entire generation of young, sick and Muslim Americans. And yeah. We even called it the backlash as if it was going to end, as if it was going to be an aberration. But fast forward 20 years later, our communities are five times more likely to be targets of hate than we were before 9-11. I'm not a college kid anymore. I'm a mother. And my son heard his first 
racial slur when he was four. You know, go back to your country. So the hate goes on, the state violence goes on, the military aggression, all of that goes on 20 years. And there's one thing that's different. And, you know, that's you. You're talking to me now. No one was calling us 20 years ago. There are more people now awake with us, willing to stand with us, willing to see us as sisters, brothers in solidarity these acts of, of what I call revolutionary love than ever before. And that is what keeps me going. Of course, there were subsequent mass shootings at Gurdwara's. Tell me, were you documenting still when all that began taking place? Yeah. So in the 20 years, every election season, every critical moment in the war on terror, these cycles of violence would continue. And yet we didn't have a massacre on the scale that other communities have survived until 2012 when a a white supremacist walked into a Gurdwara in Oak Creek, Wisconsin and opened fire on a Sunday morning. I remember Jamil being there on the ground for weeks, for months at the memorial, looking into the caskets, the open caskets of people who looked like my own aunties and uncles and just feeling like, oh, we have failed. And I stumbled back and I was trying to be all professional, but I just lost it. I was bawling and another sick brother who had been in the trenches with me, Amr Bala, lawyer, caught me and we wept together. And he said, you know, we may not live to see the fruits of our labor. How much of this concept of revolutionary love, Valerie, is based in your faith? All of it. (laughs) It springs from it. You know, Guru Nanak, the founder of the faith, he's the one who said, I see no enemy, I see no stranger. We can look at anyone and say, you are a part of me. I do not yet know. But love, you know, if you want to play the game of love with me, said Nanak, step forth with your head on your palm. You know, love was always dangerous because if I see you as my sister brother, then I have to stand up for you when you're in harm's way. So six became known as Sant Sapahi, as sage warriors. The warrior fights, the sage loves. It's a path of revolutionary love. That's what brought me to this work. but And I'm declaring revolutionary love is the call of our times. But Jamil, this call to love is ancient. You know, it's on the lips of all the spiritual teachers, indigenous leaders through history. You know, Jesus called us to love thy neighbor, Abraham to open our tent to all, Muhammad to take in the orphan, Mirabai to love without limit, Buddha unending compassion. And so for thousands of years, we've heard this call, this love ethic on the lips of our greatest teachers. And I feel like we're in a great transition now. Like, will we put the love ethic into practice on a scale we have never had before? Will we structure our society on the simple affirmation of the dignity of every single person? Or will we perish? You know, this is the question of our times. And so if anything that I'm saying about love is resonating, it's because it's touching something that's already deep inside you. It's just about uncovering our birthright. Tell me, I imagine there's been people who have come up to you and said, listen, you've opened my eyes. Uh, there's things that I'm thinking about now that I wasn't before I saw your TED talk, before I heard you speak just now, before I read your book. What are those experiences like for you? I don't know. Truthfully, Jamil, it feels like, you know, we're 20 years in and it feels like the fulfillment of a sacred contract <laughs> with Bobir Uncle and with the Sodi family and with the Sikh community to try to tell our stories, not just as victims, but as people who have something to offer the country. We can teach the country about how to sustain resilience in the face of ongoing oppression with love and with Jardikala, this concept of ever-rising joy. And so anytime I'm able to to hear someone who's taken the stories of my community or this call to love into their hearts and it's transformed them in some way, it's just this deep sense of gratitude and relief (laughs) that with everything that we are surviving, that there are people who are showing up in these pockets to insist on a new way. It's it's interesting you say relief because I think about that as a writer. I mean, I feel like every writer has some doubt as to whether or not their message will resonate with people who are reading what they're trying to say. Yes. What kind of doubts creep in as you're doing the work that you do? You know, honestly, the the thing I've been most nervous about is for other sick women 
to read the book because mm-hmm. even though our experiences are specific to us, there is a shared lived experience. And I wanted to capture that truth on the page. And it's hard because this book is the first mainstream memoir by a sick American. So the responsibility that I have felt to other women who share my, you know, we're fighting on three fronts all the time, right? Sick women. We're fighting racism against our community. We're fighting sexism within our community. And we're fighting on the front of invisibility, even in progressive spaces. So to be able to say, yes, this is our shared struggle and this is the strength and wisdom that we have to offer and to have other sick women say, this is the first time I have felt seen. That honestly is where the relief comes into play the most. (laughs) And my hope is like, may it inspire other women on the margins to be able to tell their own stories and hold up their wisdom too. Hearing Valerie talk about her struggle as a Sikh woman, how her faith gives her strength, I wanted to ask her about the connection she makes in her book between love and grief, a connection I first encountered at a crucial time in my own life. That's after the break. Listen, I mean, we're friends, so I I first read it, honestly, and it hit me. It came, as you know, at a point in my life where I was going through a lot of transition and I had to fight these these negative emotions. And also, frankly, I was grieving. And when you wrote grief is the price of love, Mm. I mean, it brought a tear to my eye because I was, it's worth that price. You know, we're going to lose a lot of people, whether through death or sometimes you move away. Sometimes people just fall out of your life. Sometimes people violate your trust, Mm. but it still doesn't make it unworthy of your time mm-hmm. <laughs> or, or your effort. And I, I don't really have a question there, just an observation. Yeah. It, can I read you the excerpt? Oh, by all means. Grief is the price of love. Loving someone means that one day there will be grieving. They will leave you or you will leave them. The more you love, the more you grieve. Loving someone also means grieving with them. It means letting their pain and loss bleed into your own heart. When you see that pain coming, you may want to throw up the guardrails, sound the alarm, raise the flag, but you must keep the borders of your heart porous in order to love well. Grieving is an act of surrender. People often tell me, but I don't know what to say. I don't know how to fix it. And I say, oh, my love, there are no perfect words and there is no fixing it. There is only bearing it. And when you bear it, when you sit with someone when they're grieving and you help them access the fact that they're grieving is a sign of how deeply they have loved. (laughs) That's the healing act. That's the revolutionary act. That's what takes us through the wound instead of around it. And, And when that happens, oftentimes if people are surviving injustice and that grieving together gives you information for how to stand up for them, how to fight for them. You know, that that moment that I fell apart in Oak Creek, there were 3,000 people in that auditorium who showed up to look at those coffins and grieve with us. And they didn't know us, but they showed up to grieve with us. And in hearing our stories and sitting with our tears, then they could hear what we needed from them. And it was we need you to take this to Congress. (laughs) We need you to help us change hate crimes policy and how our nation documents hate crimes in this country. All that time, the FBI had not been documenting hate crimes at all against our community. And so Mm -hmm. we've been asking, asking, but we couldn't do it alone. We had to do it together. And they showed up with us and we got it done a year later. The grieving together gives people information for how to fight for each other, how to stand with each other. And that's where it requires a certain kind of bravery that we can invite people to access. Have there ever been times where you didn't feel quite this brave? Yes, all the time. (laughs) (laughs) Good. All the time. I, I say good only because I know you're a human being, but it just seems like, wow, like you have a lot going for you in this, in terms of this positive message. You have so much positivity 
going forth. I, I do wonder, you know, was it ever tempting to turn against those who embodied this prejudice that, that killed your uncle, that killed those folks in Oak Creek? I mean, frankly, it's it's tough for me sometimes to not give up on a country that seems to have given up on people who look like us from the very start. <laughs> yeah. This question I've been asking is, you know, the future is dark. Is this the darkness of the tomb or the darkness of the womb? Mm-hmm. Jamil, it's both. Yeah. <laughs> it's both. We have lost so much, you know, and I actually don't think of my message as a positive one or an invitation to positivity because I have learned that, like, you have to access your grief and you have to access your rage in order to be able to be awake and respond to what feels relentless and ongoing and so traumatic. I mean, if you take colonization and slavery as the true starting point for the history of America's, what my community has been surviving for the last 20 years is not an aberration. It's just a continuation of what people of color have had to fight for centuries. So I go to Black leaders and Indigenous leaders and see how they have honored grief and how they have honored rage and knowing that they still got together to sing and Mm -hmm. to dance and to protect their joy and to teach their children that they were good and beautiful and worth fighting for. And they showed up the next morning and still chose to love. I mean, that is like the darkness of the womb, right? Can we insist that our America is not dead, but a nation still waiting to be born? And we are the midwives. We are the ones who will show up to that labor to help others breathe, to breathe ourselves. And the only way I have found longevity is if I show up with love. And when those dark thoughts come, you know, (laughs) when I want to hate to say it's okay, it's okay to feel that. It's okay to be shaken by that. And then to take the breath and say, do I want to lose myself in this? Do I want to be blinded by it? Is this who I want to be? Or do I want to say, is if that person is a human being, why did they do that? Can I wonder about them? Can I insist on humanity when everything around me wants me to extinguish it? And that is where I have sovereignty and mm-hmm. I have agency and I have power and no one can take that from me. In what you're saying here, it also reminds me that you're showing a way that there is a use for anger. I've so yes. often said that anger is a pointless and useless emotion that, that you know, along <laughs> with jealousy, because I feel it and I feel it's a really strong discomfort. I'm very good at arguing and being persuasive and whatnot. Depends on the environment, but usually I'm pretty good at it. That being said, when I'm angry, yeah, I can tell somebody off. Yeah, I've gotten training in that. But I always feel like it's almost like an out-of-body experience. It's so discomforting. And you're saying that there's some use for anger. And I, honestly, I could use that <laughs> direction because, <laughs> I mean, I was I was in New York on September 11th. I was mm. there. And I know countless people, of course, for whom that was the worst day of their lives. That was either the end of their lives or the end of the life of someone whom they care about. And looking downtown and wondering where the towers are, not having Mm. seen the towers collapse and not really finding out until later that afternoon what actually happened. I I Mm. just the anger has stayed with me for 20 years and I don't know if it'll ever leave. But now I'm getting an idea. uh, You know what? Even if it doesn't leave, that's okay. Yeah, that's right, brother. You know, as a South Asian American woman, I was always raised to think that I was only as good or spiritual or loving as my ability to choke down my rage. And even after the sexual assault or the act of police brutality or after Bulbir uncle was killed, like, you know, I felt sadness, but I wouldn't let myself feel that rage. And it wasn't until, you know, when I broke my silence around the sexual assault, my mother stood between me and the rest of the extended family. And there was rage roaring inside of her. I had never seen so much fury in her eyes before. And she Mm. said, my daughter will tell her story. She's the one who taught me that rage is the force that protects that which we love, that I was worth fighting for. And I had, especially girls are so taught to sever themselves from accessing their rage and therefore accessing their agency, their power to protect their bodies their bodies themselves are worth protecting. And she was saying, no, you're worth protecting my love. And I need you to access this for yourself. And when she did that, I began to like really learn about rage. Audre Lorde says our rage is loaded with information and energy. Mm -hmm. You know, and the solution I think is not to suppress it 
or to let it explode. And that's, <laughs> this right, is really important right. for like so many men and boys who think like their explosion of rage is their sign of their strength. But no, can you release and express and process your rage in safe containers like our ancestors did? The wailing and the screaming and the, and the drumming and the dancing and the sweating and the crying. Those are expressions to be intimate with the most powerful energies moving through us right? To have safe containers for that, that don't harm others or ourselves. And then to lift our gaze after and say, okay, what information is my rage carrying? And how do I want to harness that energy for what I do in the world, for what I do next? And that harnessed energy, that's what I call divine rage. The aim of divine rage is not vengeance. The aim of divine rage is to reorder the world. Well, as we know, of course, there's so much rage right now in our politics in particular that is not at all divine. Uh, if there is a grief happening, you know, the erosion of white supremacy, perhaps, and yeah. of, of patriarchy, you know, they're lashing out. We see this Texas abortion law, these voting rights restrictions, this effort to criminalize anti-racism, to criminalize actual history. There's so much to challenge revolutionary love. How does revolutionary love answer that challenge? Well, this is where it's helpful to think about this whole era, everything that you named as signs that we are in transition as a nation. Within the next 25 years, the number of people of color will exceed the number of white people for the first time since colonization. And so all of what we are seeing play out is a resistance to that reality. And so we're at a crossroads. You know, will we continue this power struggle with those who wish to return America to a past where only a certain class of white people hold power? Or will we begin to birth a nation that has never been, literally never been, a nation made up of other nations, a nation that affirms the dignity of every single person? I choose to labor for that future, right? And the right. only way I will find longevity in the labor is if I don't become what I'm fighting against. I think it's also important that we don't take the easy way out. My colleague, Emily Stewart, has a wonderful piece up about how essentially 9-11 commoditized patriotism. You know, it's easy to buy a T-shirt that says God bless America and have a flag in your yard and put a pin on your jacket and say that you're a patriot. But, you know, let's think about the people who commit white supremacist terrorism and think that they're doing so in the name of this country. They are doing so, of course, in the name of a country that they would like to maintain, one that was built upon the foundation of, yes. you know, people who were enslaved and disenfranchised and terrorized. And honestly, like America has better ideas that are being essentially limited or, or, or prohibited by the spread of racism, misogyny and all of these different assorted hatreds. And honestly, there's nothing particularly profound to say. It's just a damn shame. Yes. <laughs> and this is where I think that the central problem for America is not necessarily just a political one or economic one. It, it's a spiritual one. It's a cultural one. And we need sound government and we need just policy. And the only way that we're going to last is if we have a shift in culture and consciousness, you know, a new way of being and seeing each other. And this is where I believe revolutions happen, not just in those big grand public moments, but in the spaces where people are coming together to inhabit a new way of being. And so that's where revolutionary love comes into play, Jamil, that in this time of transition, if we can equip a critical mass of people with the tools to build anti-racist, healthy, sustainable community where they are, to build beloved community where they are, then maybe that can create the shift in consciousness needed for the nation as a whole in the coming decades. That's the long view. <laughs> and, th and that's hard, especially when you can't see it or measure it as easily. But you know, I've, I've spent the last 20 years organizing around hate and I've seen where that's gotten us. Mm -hmm. And I, I've decided I'm going to spend the next 20 years organizing around love. Can you tell me some of the tools that you put into use in order to do that? I know that you are a wonderful speaker. You're a wonderful writer. You have made films as well that are extraordinary. What kind of tools do we need, especially for those of us out here who may not have those skills? Mm. So there are tools, I call those pieces that you name like sword and shield. <laughs> like Those are my <laughs> right. particular instruments to be able to, to fight for justice as an activist. But I actually am not inviting everyone to become activists like me. I'm inviting everyone to imagine a way of being where you see no stranger. And from that way of seeing, 
how does that shape what you do and how you relate and what policies you support and who you vote for and how you participate in democracy. When I wrote See No Stranger, I poured through not just my own lived experience and case studies and movements, but also neuroscience, psychology, history, ethics. And I began to see these patterns, which I call practices of revolutionary love. So when I'm inviting people to be equipped with tools, it's more these internal practices that we can start to inhabit as community. So wonder as a primary practice, if you can orient to another with the eyes of wonder, then compassion, empathy, they follow, they ebb and flow. But wonder is is what you can lead with that is the beginning of learning how to love someone. Grieving, having the tools to be able to grieve for your own losses and grieve with others who are in harm's way. Fighting, knowing that you have a particular role in the fight, (laughs) that every single one of us has tools. Mine happen to be lawyering and filmmaking, but you have particular skills that only you have a sphere of influence and you can marshal those wherever you are to advance justice where you are. Rage, how to honor your rage, work with your rage, be brave with your rage, not to let it explode, but to harness that energy. And then if you're safe enough to listen, to be able to listen to your opponent, not to change them or persuade them or legitimize them, but to understand them. Mm. And then taking that information to move into not resistance, but reimagining, reimagining the context that keeps driving their harm. You just heard Valerie use phrases like honor your rage and orient to another with the eyes of wonder. I'm still really struck by how Valerie is presenting a radical reappraisal of how to thrive in a diverse society. That is, if you're willing to do the work. But what about people who are fundamentally opposed to that kind of society, no matter what? I'll ask her about that after one more short break. I do think about these white supremacists, for instance, that we're talking about, you know, they've never really been willing to, as a whole, engage in any kind of debate or conversation that's constructive. And so, you know, how do we do this work without making sure that it's not, say, communities of color or uh, other disenfranchised Americans or underserved Americans who are doing the lion's share of the work that actually should be the burden of those causing the problem. That's absolutely right. And this is where, you know, some people have called the revolutionary love framework nonviolence (laughs) 2.0 because it makes room for the idea that everyone has a different role in the labor. I'll tell you a story. On the day of the insurrection, Mm. my brother-in-law was trapped in the Capitol building on January 6th. Mm. My husband and I were locked ourselves in the office so that our children couldn't see us. And we were watching the screen and on the phone with his mother and wife sobbing and and then getting texts from him that he was okay, but we could see what he could not see on the screen, the people pounding down the, the doors and stalking the halls, Confederate flags, heavily armed. And I didn't know what he would they would do if they found him. Oh my gosh. He made it out and I felt my body and I thought, this is terror. <laughs> feeling terror in my body. And that terror is familiar. Like how many times have I seen people I love in the face of white supremacist violence? That night, I got a phone call from my teammate and she helped me build the Revolutionary Love Project. I love her so much. And she said, Valerie, I'm so sorry. And I said, oh, I know. She's like, no, my parents were at the Capitol. I'm like, oh, are they okay? She's like, no, 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 you don't understand. They were on the outside of the building. Oh. So my brother-in-law is on the inside. And her parents are on the outside. And in that moment, you know, Dr. King's words, like we are bound together in a single garment of human destiny. It just, and as much as I wanted to hate them, as much as I wanted to see them as evil and as monsters, I had to see them through the eyes of their daughter who saw them as deeply wounded, Mm -hmm. as misinformed, misguided, whose racial impulses were legitimized all the way up to the presidency that did not make them any less dangerous. But once I could see them through their daughter's eyes, they ceased having power over me. And I thought, okay, someone has to tend to those wounds. It's probably not me. (laughs) It's probably not you, but it might be her. For those 
white folks who have the privilege, who have the ability to look at their families and their relatives and their colleagues and their neighbors and their students and do that work, that is a very essential role that somebody has to play. Yeah. Because those people are not going anywhere. And the only way we're going to birth a multiracial democracy is if we leave no one behind. So to invite people to get savvy about their particular role in the labor and say, now's the time. We need you now. Yeah. I, I think what part of that struggle to bring those people into the fold is that we have to come to a common understanding of what patriotism is. First of all, common understanding of what facts are. But that aside, to me, patriotism is like tough love. It's that James Baldwin quote, you know, loving this country so much that you reserve the right to criticize her mm-hmm. unconditionally. That is what patriotism is to me. It's, it's saying that, you know, in America, you can do better than this. We can wave a flag. I have family who serve this country and enrich their lives. I can understand that. I'm not saying that that's wrong. I'm just saying it's incomplete. You know, this summer, Jamil, I took my children to Yosemite for the first time. And we were learning about how the valley was cut by glaciers millions of years ago. Mm-hmm. And we sat at the feet of the sequoias. You know, the greatest tree on earth is in Sequoia National Park, 2,200 years old. So almost all of recorded human history in the lifespan of this single being. And we learned the names for these trees in the indigenous languages of the peoples who have been here for thousands of years. And Jamil, I realized that this land is so much older than the United States, that the United States is such a recent construct. And it had such a bloody start, such a horrific start, the colonization and the conquest and the genocide and the slavery. And what's been so painful about it is that it contradicts the story that the nation keeps telling itself that it's a nation of freedom and justice for all. And what's been so remarkable is to see people of color with allies, every generation stand up to seize the magic of those words in the constitution to try to make them true. And this is why it's helpful to me to think about America as a nation that is still waiting to be born. And if I can follow the lead of black leaders and indigenous leaders who have known long before us how to fight white supremacy on the soil, you know, if I can follow their imaginations, (laughs) their moral imaginations about what this nation could be, what this land could be, then, then I can find the strength to last. That's patriotic. (laughs) 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 To answer your question. (laughs) No, that that definitely answers the question, you know, to what you're speaking about, about how, you know, ignorance is easier than critical thinking. Losing control (laughs) of one's emotions is easier than holding it together. Being selfish is easier than giving and, and to think of others. I mean, I think about what's going on right now with these vaccinations in that light. And, you know, it's easier to say, well, I'm, this is a personal choice when it, by the function of the disease is not. How do you fit that into the framework of revolutionary love? Are we failing a test with this disease in that respect? Yes. My daughter just started preschool and my son had to go through a year of virtual kindergarten, virtual kindergarten, Jamil. What is that? <laughs> and you know, one of her first words was mask. I mean, she's a pandemic baby. And so she's just, you know, sending them into the world before there is a vaccine and knowing that those who've made the choice not to get vaccinated are actively putting these babies at risk is I have to open up the revolutionary love compass and say rage. Like I need space and time to process my rage, to access it, to feel angry. And then I've had conversations with unvaccinated friends and tried to understand. And it helps me figure out what the problem is, that we live in a society where we have different versions of reality (laughs) that never before, because of the algorithms and the echo chambers and the social media, could we be living side by side and have completely different versions of reality, not just interpretations of facts, but different sets of facts. And that's new in our history and in the world. And so to be able to know like, okay, the revolutionary love compass helps me do that one-on-one work to rage, to listen, then to reimagine. And it's almost like 
recycling. You know, it's like climate change. Like we know we need to recycle. We need to do the one-on-one work. We need to recycle in our homes. But what's really going to solve this are the big policy changes that we need to solve climate change. Same thing with being able to hold truth to journalism and follow scientific evidence and be able to follow the edicts of public health for a society that is so divided that we don't even have shared notions of the truth. Those are the changes. And I, I can point to the organizations, the people who have the policy proposals to be able to change the terms, to protect the ability for platforms to suss out what is true and what is not. And until that happens, it's the one-on-one work that is necessary to be able to lead people through a process of like, no, your choices are making my kids at risk. If I can hear you, can you hear me now? And that's my hope in the relationships I'm tending around this. I'm glad you spoke to that being difficult for you. I wonder, I've always wondered, you know, how you found yourself challenged in your own life in relation to this quest, in relation to this journey you've set yourself yeah. upon these last 20 years. I, mean, I imagine it's hard to practice what you preach every day. <laughs> well, I think that's why it's helpful to think of, I've started to think about my life as a series of experiments with revolutionary love. Mm-hmm. Like, here's a North Star, here's a compass, and I'm, I'm going to try and I'm going to fail and it's going to be messy. I'm going to make mistakes and then open up the compass and say, okay, well, maybe it's time for me just to sit and weep, or maybe it's time for me to, to breathe, or maybe this is the time for me to push. And, and I think that's why I'd like to put it into people's hands as a tool, <laughs> not a prescription, you know, as, right, as an invitation right. for you to call upon your highest wisdom as you are navigating the trials of every day of your life. Valerie Kaur, I really do appreciate the time that you've spent with us and I look forward to many more conversations with you, my friend. Thank you. It is such a joy, Jamil. And if if any of this is resonating with folks, it's seenostranger.com and you'll see that we released a whole learning hub, <laughs> a revolutionary love learning hub with free practices and tools that you all can take into your life and we can all be experimenting together. Very good. Thank you. Fox Conversations is produced by Eric Janikas. Our editor is Amy Drostowska. Our theme music was dreamed up by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. And Amber Hall is the deputy editorial director of Vox Talk. If you like the show, please let us know. If there's room for improvement, we want to hear that too. We're curious to know what you think, what you want more of, and what we could improve. And if you have ideas for future guests, guest hosts, or topics, we want you to be involved. Please send us your thoughts at voxconversations at vox.com. And hey, if you did like this episode, give us five stars, leave us a good review, share it with your friends and family, and make sure that you come back next week for a brand new episode.